Automotive Group Hotline. Greg Raystraw, who unfortunately had duties last night on the post-game show, he does join us now. Um, so, what do you think? And this is obviously, this is an opinion piece I'm asking you right here. Do you think Nick Foles looked at all like last night in those days of practice leading up to? <laughs> I mean, no, but as you know, <laughs> there is nothing, especially in late December, that is going to replicate the speed of a game in practice. You know, there, there's very few things in practice to replicate the speed of a game. That tends to be more the case once you get to, you know, training camp and like specialist practices against another team. But there's nothing they would have done last week that would have come close to looking like what the Los Angeles Chargers well, looked like last night. I, I would disagree only in a sense of I think it would be relatively easy to replicate the speed of the game that Nick Foles presently has in any practice. Fair enough. I mean, again, let's, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to convince you that Nick Foles is the answer to the team at quarterback. Uh, right. For the life of me, I can't figure out why you're not playing Ellinger. And that's not some reendorsement of Sam. I don't know what he is. I got a pretty good idea what Matt Ryan and Nick Foles are at this point. Uh, and so why the continued, why you're going to stick with, with, uh, with, with Foles at this point. I mean, you already made, let's, let's really count them out loud. Three different quarterback changes in terms of who's the starter this year without, with really only injury playing a part in one of those. Um, what's there to making a third and a fourth? I, I have no earthly idea, but uh, I'm sure he looked far better in practice than he did a night ago. Another opinion piece for Greg Rakestraw, the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, is there any way this Colts team is not the worst in the NFL presently? Uh, it's certainly possible. Um, we'll find out when the Houston Texans are here, given the fact that they won for the first time in God knows how long last week and did so against a Titans team that is in complete free fall. Um, the Broncos aren't ex- exactly inspiring much in the way of confidence. Uh, the Bears don't seem to be any good. So there is, you know, the misery loves company division. The Colts are a part of it. But, John, I'm not sure there's a big difference in being the first worst team or the fifth worst team other than the draft pick that you are going to get coming up at the end of April. Do you think that this is a, I don't want to say quick fix because we know that, but, I mean, is this something where you can, in an offseason, feel any sort of turnaround if you go out and sure. draft a, a top-ranked type of quarterback? Because, no, I, I, listen, I'm in a pessimistic mood right now. So I don't see it. And, you know, and, and knowing this organization the way that it is, the direction of this going, the direction is going to continue to go, I don't sit here and feel like they're going to dig out of this anytime soon. So add a ray of hope to this conversation, if you would. I, I think they can turn around pretty quickly. And historically, I did this off the top of my head last night, every time the Colts had a season like this in the last 20 years, They've made the playoffs the next year. So in 2001, six-win team, that was in large part because Edger and James was hurt and the defense was terrible. The next year, they won 10 games and were a playoff team. 2011, they won two games. No Peyton Manning. Obviously, there was an Andrew Luck waiting in the wings. You win 11 games, you're a playoff team. In 2017, you win four times. Again, Andrew Luck for a second time was waiting in the wings. You come back and you win 10 games the next year, and you win a playoff game the next year as well. 
So typically this franchise has bounced back quickly from years like this one. Now, is the whole is the whole a little harder to climb out of this year? Yeah, because of what you expect to have at the quarterback position next year. I think it'll be somebody different. I think it'll be a first-round pick. I think it'll be somebody young. Um, your point is well made in terms of overall number of pieces you've got to fill. You do have some significant building blocks that are already in place here. You just don't have what is the ultimate question, and that is who the quarterback of this team is going to be next year. Right, Greg Strauss with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline live in Shelbyville at Buffalo Wild Wings. We'll take the quarterback position out of the, the conversation and your thought right here. How many more questions do we see right now and not good questions to be answered sure. for this Colts team, more so than what we saw back at the beginning of the season? Well, the, the, the thing that we didn't think was a question now we know is is offensive line. Um, the precipitous drop that this group has made. There was last night seven sacks, and you pick an offensive lineman, I can point to a sack as to, that's probably on this guy. We saw Bernard Ryman getting beat. And by Khalil Mack as a rookie, that, that's understandable. Saw Quentin Nelson get beat. Saw Braden Smith get beat. Um, you know, not recognizing blitz pickups properly, which has been a problem the entire year for this group. And so, to be honest with you, there's probably an easier answer at quarterback, as in draft somebody in the first five or six picks, than there is for fixing the offensive line. Where I think that largely, maybe maybe a, a different face or two at most, but everybody else is going to be back next year. In other words, you better find somebody that coach this group up, uh, because this this went to hell in a handbasket in a hurry uh, for that offensive line. So there, the, so that is the other big question, along with um, along with with, with quarterback. Uh, I still have question marks about the wide receiver position, but we kind of knew that going in, and it's almost a matter of, hey, listen, you've got everybody other than Paris Campbell returning on their contracts next year. Let's see what a difference in quarterback, potentially offensive line and scheme might make for uh, for you know this football team. Uh, now the other questions are going to be, what do the Colts do with, with free agents on defense? You know, we've acknowledged, you know, Bobby O'Karake and EJ Speed. Um, they've had good years, but if you got Shaq Leonard, you got Zaire Franklin for two more years, what do your linebackers look like? And then is Stephon Gilmore back next year? Is Yannick Ngakwe back next year? And so those are questions you're not really thinking of right now, but that kind of comes in, you know, secondary, tertiary, et cetera. So there are plenty of questions. It's not just the quarterback, but I put them at quarterback and offensive line at 1A or 1B then you get to everything else. Hey, Greg, I know this in closing that it doesn't matter because Jim Irsay is going to end up hiring who Jim Irsay wants to hire, whether it's going to be Jeff Saturday or somebody else they end up interviewing after the season. But did he mistakenly, putting Jeff Saturday in this situation, did he set him up for a failure in the eyes of the fan base? If nothing, It certainly else? appears that way. Um, and again, you, you prefaced it very well. If you just went on the results that you have seen and the drop this team has been under, then you would say you're not bringing back Jeff Saturday. But Jim Irsay looks at things in a different way than I think the rest of us do. Is it Jim Irsay's call? Is it Chris Ballard's call? Is it somebody in Chris Ballard's job's call as far as whether it's Jeff Saturday or somebody else, you know, next year, who knows at this point. So 
So if you just went by how this team has played since Jeff was named the head coach, then no, he would not be back next year. But is he the head coach next year? Who knows? Because it's been awfully difficult to read exactly the direction that Jim Marseille is going to go with this thing. All right, one final thing with Greg Raystraw on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Does does Jim Marseille, at least as we sit here right now and talk, evidently want to continue the Chris Ballard era because he truly believes in him, because he still has to pay him, or because he likes to go ahead influence decisions that normally the owner, most of the time football-wise, would stay out of, and it's either clear Ballard's cool with it or doesn't do too much about it. One of the three, all the three, any of the three accurate in your estimation? I'm not sure exactly how the situation is going to play out. The one thing of those statements that I feel I know with it is, is Ballard cool with it? I would say no. There's a lot of things that your boss tells you to do that you're not cool with, but you do it because of the job that you have, uh, because you don't want to lose the job that you have and you just deal with it. That would be my best guess on trying to read Chris Ballard's, you know, thoughts on the situation as it currently stands with the Indianapolis Colts. Um, But is Chris going to be the general manager a month from now? I have no earthly idea. A lot of the same reasons I just told you about is Jeff Saturday is going to be the head coach of this team a month from now as well. All right, brother, where are you going to be later on this week? So um, I'll be heading not as far south as you, but east coming up here in a couple hours. I've got Cathedral and Warren Central coming up tonight nice. on my Indy TV. Tomorrow I've got games at two different sites. I've got the opening stage of North Central's holiday tournament in the morning. Then I've got standalone game between Carmel and Anderson tomorrow at Carmel. Then I'll be setting up shop in Newcastle on Thursday and Friday for the girls and then boys Hall of Fame classics. All told, John, starting at 730 tonight, I will have 12 games in 75 hours, and last night was the first night of a stretch of 10 consecutive days. Either I'll have a game to broadcast on TV or the Internet or a football game to talk about on the Colts Radio Network at 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I have a great memory of the Hall of Fame Classic. Once upon a time, I went over there to watch Perry Meridian play, and my good friend Brandon Ray put up 36 against uh, Adam Liddell, and that other dude that I think played somewhere in D1 for DeKalb back in the day at Newcastle. Very nice. It was, yeah, it was all, on, all on layups. Brandon I, Ray, I, 36 in that afternoon game. Every one of them were layups. Beautiful. See, I assumed that you were going to, you know, you were doing the Green County thing and you were over there following <laughs> Brody Boyd and, and Jared Chambers and, uh, and Union of Duggar when they played in that event 22. I thought that was the direction you're going to go with that. No, no, a little B-Ray over there back in the day with what he did in dismantling DeKalb in that afternoon game. Hey, who's in it, girls and boys, before I let you go? All right, girls-wise, Mishawaka, Marion, Noblesville, East Central, Bedford, North Lawrence. Uh, boys-wise, yep. go ahead. Shout-out to Jeff Allen at B&L. Go ahead. There you go. Boys-wise, Ben Davis and Penner, one and two in the state, depending on what poll you look at. They'll play each other in the morning. Uh, the other game is Northwood in North Davies. Then winners play Friday night, and again, we'll have the boys' consolation and championship games on Miami TV 23 starting Friday night at 6 o'clock. Shout-out to Brent Dalrymple, again, the defending champion, North Davies, and they are moving from – they move from one to three in class, which is awesome. And Jeff Allen is the head coach of Bedford-North Lawrence. He is, like me, a native of Owensburg, Indiana, in Greene County. <laughs> there you go.
He's good people, and they're a good team. I think they are. I think they're easily the team that will get to the semi-state. Remember, four teams go to the semi-state now, not two like it's been for the last twenty-something years. They're a semi-state team um, because most of the really good Indy area teams go in the northern half of the state. Would not surprise me if Beth North Lawrence is in the four A state championship game. South Bend Washington is extremely good. I saw Zionsville and the girls a couple of weeks ago. They're really good. They're not very deep, but they're really good. And Zionsville beat BNL when they played at the sneakers event in Brownsburg on November the 26th. But I, I, I could see the Stars making it to Gamebridge Fieldhouse uh, for the 4A state finals. That's how good Jeff's team is this year. Jeff, back in the late 70s, early 80s, played for both Ray Meyer and Joey Meyer. I should say played. He sat for uh, Ray Meyer and Joey <laughs> Meyer at DePaul. But he was there, baby. <laughs> he was there. And, uh, an he's an awesome to, dude, by the way. It gives me an excuse just to say Dallas Comedies. <laughs> yeah, well, program. that was, that was fun. He was with, uh, I think he was with uh, Tyrone Corbin, Terry Cummings. I think he's on the other side of Mark Aguirre. Um, Kenny Patterson was a part of that Paul team. Brett Burkholder was a six foot ten, six foot eleven guy that was his roommate. Um, so he uh, he played with a who's who certainly of DePaul back in the day. If if he was between Aguirre and Kamajis, that would put him squarely from 1981 to 1985. Be right around that yes. window, right there. Exactly. I think it was. I think it was 81 and 82. I know that they normally DePaul other than the Final Four in 79 when they made it all the way to Salt Lake City. Normally, DePaul was like one of those disappointing teams, having a great year and then kind of disappointing with that level of talent. And I think they, they were supposed to, in 81, remember, they got bounced before the, uh, the Sweet 16 or the regionals that took place at Assembly Hall in Bloomington when IU went on to Philly and won that national title in 81. So they were supposed well, 80, to be there. I think they got beat maybe by that. either well, Wake Forest or Boston that. College or UAB or somebody like that, so. Right, 81, that was the year of, of uh, U.S. Reed beating Louisville on a half-court shot. So yep. 81 was the year of the upsets in the tournament. Greg, have fun, man. We'll be listening. Thanks, brother. Thanks, buddy. Greg Rachel on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Your calls on the other side at 239-1070. Shelbyville, Buffalo, Wild Wings, 93.5107. The fan. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta. Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Hello, Ben. Are you there? Ben? Can you hear me? Hello. Ben? Can you hear are you me? There? Can you hear me? I can me? hear you now, buddy. Yeah. Are you there? The Tommy. The Tommy Kramer jersey, unfortunately, did not find its way under the Christmas tree this year. <laughs> but uh, I did get to I did get to attend live and in the flesh the uh, whiteout game on Christmas Eve for the Vikings, which you oh, know emerged boy. victorious on a 61 yard field goal. So I think that was you know uh, Christmas present enough for me, I guess this year. You know your fellows are living on borrowed time, though. They're going to be bounced about as quickly as they enter the postseason. You know that, right? I know. I mean, so I think even, you know, five to 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I was, you know, a younger buck or whatever, like my, my optimism yep. would have been running uh, rampant at this point. Right. But I think I'm just taking it all in stride. I'm enjoying, you know, the, the trajectory with which they're probably going to land and crash and burn. But uh, at this point, I'm kind of just enjoying the ride. Cause it's been, 
you know, I, I would say better than expectation. And anything on top of that, I would say, you know, might be just gravy at this point. Who's your favorite Vikings player of all time? And how deep can you go with your favorite player? Is it somebody that, like from a year ago? Is it like Adam Thielen who's presently on the no. team? No, I mean, I'm growing up when I did, I timed it pretty well with the Randy Moss glory yeah. days. And I feel like far and away, uh, bar none, I, I, you know, and obviously there's, there's a, you know, the, the popularity aspect and everything else. I do have some, you know, under the radar type players that I greatly enjoyed as well, but uh, you know, as a young kid growing up in Minnesota, it doesn't get any better than Randy Moss. And I would, and I would maybe debate, not necessarily, you know, uh, top end production at the wide receiver position, but I think most talented wide receiver, um, I, I would probably still lean in Randy Moss's direction over a guy like Jerry Rice. I know that might be a hot take, but yeah, uh, that's, that's a hot that's take. How fond I am of Randy Moss. Let me tell you this: uh, there's nobody in Vikings history better than Ahmad Rashad and/or Sammy White. All right, so don't get me started. Right. So you don't even know who I'm talking about. That Ahmad Rashad so was far. a little bit. Well, I know who I, I know who Ahmad, Ahmad Rashad was. He was just a little <laughs> bit before my time. I was more of like the Robert Smith, the Robert Smith era. Who you know he Good he Lord. retired young. I had you know the Roy Horde. If you need three yards, I can get you three yards. If you need five yards, I can get you three yards. Like the the throwback <laughs> running back guys, those sorts of things. So that's that's more of the era in which I was in. The I would say the sweet spot, maybe the. Not so much the olden, olden days, but uh, the glory days, maybe. Hey, me and my friends here, Bill and Kent, we go back to the days of Scott Studwell playing linebacker. That's where we go, right there, buddy. Scott Studwell. Yeah. Because I always wanted that I, last I name. I know him as well. I mean, yes, I know that. I mean, the perfect linebacker last name. The, I mean, he, he kind of had it all, at least as far as, like, the linebacker-esque. Uh, you know, of the throwback days for sure. So he is definitely, you know, Minnesota sports legend. No, hand, no, no doubt about it. All right. Did you do any of the background numbers, informational work last night to find out who had as a starter this season, the lowest quarterback rating for a game in its entirety? And did Nick Foles set that mark last night with his awful performance? Where are we? It was, it was pretty bad. I would say I, I looked at it from an EPA perspective, which, you know, EPA per offensive play uh, generated. The Colts now have the three lowest weekly performances of EPA of any team in the NFL. One of, you know, they have three of the four weeks of teams that generated, you know, minus 0.5 or worse EPA per offensive play. Uh, so that was, uh, we would say, probably the second worst overall offensive performance last night of any team in the NFL, uh, beaten only by uh, the week nine version of the Indianapolis Colts that they put forth against the New England. <laughs> so those are kind of the two, the two games that have been the worst so far this season. So the two worst offensive performances, according to PFF, would be the Colts and the Patriots, which ultimately got was the final straw for Frank Reich. He was gassed after that. And then last night's offensive performance on Monday Night Football, correct? Yep. So we got the Colts in week nine, worst offensive EPA performance this season. The Colts in week 16 against the Chargers last night was the second worst. And then the Colts in week two against the Jaguars was the third worst. Wow. That's great. That sounds like that's a quick fix right there offensively, is it not? Hey, just go out there and draft a quarterback and everything's going to be fine. Is that true? It's the way that it looks, right? I, I mean, mean, it 
I, the thing is, is we've also had this mentality or idea that, you know, quarterbacks and quality quarterback play in some ways kind of grows on trees, right? And, and, and kind of discovering that that is very much the problem. But until you can actually find that and unearth that, like the, the rest of the, the rest of the solutions don't really get where they need to be, I would say. But I mean, I, I don't mind taking a chance in the draft, but I think, you know, even in that situation, there's definitely no guarantee. So Ben Brown of PFF, he is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline every Tuesday here in the four o'clock hour going over the numbers and the analytics. So any quarterbacks that you know of, any quarterbacks that you've looked up that had a worse individual by the numbers, according to PFF performance, than Nick Foles did individually last night this season? That's that's a good. So I can actually look that up pretty quickly. here. Awesome. You want me to waste some time um, while you look that up? Yeah, sing a, you know, sing a song or something here really quick. All right, so Nick Foles, I'll put everybody to sleep with this. 17 of 29, 143, an average of under five yards uh, per catch, three interceptions, sacked seven times, his quarterback rating 31.9. In a world where you got to be over 100 to have a decent to good game, 31.9 was his quarterback rating. All right, where are we, Ben? He wasn't – so uh, from PFF's perspective, he wasn't, I would say, at the worst that we've had so far this season. Now, granted, we have had some players that haven't thrown very many dropbacks. So there is some, you know, uh, you know, situations playing out with that as well. But, you know, the three interceptions, obviously, really bad. But he was, I would say, probably like, like the – 15th or so worst PFF passing grade so far this season. So definitely not the worst. Uh, we actually had even, you know, a, a guy like Zach Wilson, um, you know, this week with the worst, you know, PFF passing grade than what Nick Foles put forth. So maybe a little bit is, you know, the, the accuracy percentage and his willingness to at least throw the football downfield. But, uh, you know, from that perspective, he wasn't, he wasn't the worst of the worst and, and wasn't even the worst, I would say, in week 16. Zach Wilson was 9 of 18, 92 yards, sacked three times. His quarterback rating was 41.9, and that was better than Foles last night? So that, for, according to PFF grade, that was better than he, – he was How are you guys Foles, grading? Uh, Foles was. <laughs> <laughs> what numbers are you I mean, using to we're, grade? We're, this is, so this is throws. Yeah, so this is, this is obviously passing dropbacks. We're, uh, this isn't including um, – you know, his, I would say his performance basically in, in rushing situations, which, you, you know, it is obviously um, a detriment, but yeah, we have him, we had, you know, Malik Willis had a worse passing performance than uh, a, worse, a worse passing grade than what Nick Foles had in week 16. Yep. We had, we had, we had Malik Willis with 39.6 passing grade. 29 well, dropbacks, 24 attempts, 15 completions, 119 yards, two interceptions. So Malik Willis, 14 to 23, 99 yards, two interceptions, a quarterback rating of 34 and a half. He was sacked four times. That was Malik Will. I can't believe we're talking about, according to PFF, a worse performance than we saw from Nick Foles. Now, do you guys take into numbers consideration when the quarterback throws it directly to a defensive player? I mean, just like, is there anything like, like you just drop back and not even under duress, but you just throw it right to a defensive player. Like he's on your team. Do you guys consider that? Right. We, I mean, we consider it and we, and there are like 
scales for how bad plays can actually be, right? And even if it doesn't end up being an interception because he does try and throw it to the guy and the guy for some reason doesn't catch it, like we would still grade that as a turnover-worthy type play. So we had Nick Foles with four of those, um, you know, turnover-worthy type plays, which is, you know, among the worst of the worst. I haven't looked at what that grade distribution is. If he has like the first, what we would classify as like, a minus two grade on any single play uh, sure. from one of those attempts last night. But, um, I, I, and I can look at that, but yeah, he had four turnover worthy plays, three interceptions. Um, there have been a couple cases where a guy, a guy has had like five, five or more, you know, turnover worthy type plays, which uh, Nick Foles definitely got up there and has a really high percentage of those plays, but um, we still had him, you know, with a couple, I would say, uh, you know, throws to the point where he wasn't like the worst graded player, from a passing perspective in week 16. So Ben Brown of PFF on the Andy Moore automotive group hotline. All right, get to some of these other incredibly ugly offensive and offensive numbers. We saw from this Colts team last night, and this is something that we have concentrated on the offensive line all season long. And, And to me, it looked like a combination of the offensive line doing its normal offensive line things and a quarterback that is incredibly inaccurate, incredibly slow, well, well past it, and at times would just throw it to somebody else not on his team, thinking, I guess, he was on his team. So the offensive line, what role did they play? Numbers-wise, what do they look like? Yeah, I mean, so we had we had Will Fries with a, a slightly above average, I would say, overall offensive grade, both run blocking and pass blocking. Bernard Raymond was essentially, I would say, right around league average from both a pass block and run blocking perspective. And then the rest of the three guys, very much below average. And, and in some ways, it was, you know, a, an issue with the pressure type situations. But kind of like you said, there was just no feel or rhythm whatsoever for Nick Foles in the pocket when he did make some throws, even to, you know, a guy like Michael Pittman, when they needed to convert the chains, you know, the catch wasn't there either. So I, I would say that the, you know, the offensive line probably deserves some sort of responsibility in this equation. But uh, if I'm allocating it out, uh, I very much think coach and quarterback probably come and make a much bigger piece of that pie than what the, the offensive line contributed to last night. Uh, play caller, I guess, in Parks Frazier, when you talk yeah. about the coach, that's where we point as far as yeah. some of these calls that have been made since he's taken over from being, you know, basically yeah, an assistant think, intern type of guy to the play caller. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, kind of the situation that we talked about when they did fire Frank, right. Right. And they kind of went in parks. Fraser's direction was like, there, there's no, there's no real thing to fall back on for him. And then the one spot that Frank Reich was really good, uh, you know, with some of these scripted play type situations where you had some of the highest EPA generated on those first 15 set of plays of any, of any, of any, you know, coordinator in the NFL. And, and when that kind of fell off, like the Colts are, the worst passing offense on scripted plays so far this season. Now, uh, you know, especially without Frank Reich, or especially when they moved on from Frank Reich, and I think you know, falling up, falling behind early and, and just having no counter punch to what the defense is actually bringing you is probably one of the main reasons why uh, they have been such an inept offense. I would say so far. Here's what stands out to me, Ben, and I don't know if you have numbers to back this up, numbers to solidify this, but we're talking about in terms of Matt Ryan and Nick Foles, two quarterbacks that have had a level of success in the NFL over a number of years. You know, one's 
likely a future Hall of Famer, but they've had a great deal of success. They're both veteran quarterbacks, and they, in the Ryan starts most of the time, and certainly in that full start last night, they look like that they've never played a down in the NFL as quarterback with decision-making, with efficient, with all of that. Is, is that just the offense in general? Is that them? Is that the offensive line not doing what they're supposed to do? Is it the lack of trust and who they're throwing it to? Because that, to me, if there's one thing that's clear with these two veteran quarterbacks is they look like that they've never played in the NFL before decision-making-wise. Right. Where do we, by the numbers, lump that criticism and reason why they look like that? Are they just over the hill? Are they past it? Are they washed? Or is that just a product of where this offense is? Yeah, I mean, I and I don't have a great way of quantifying this. This is obviously something we very much, you know, are working on and striving towards and trying to better understand, I would say. But from my perspective and when I'm looking at it, I do think it goes back to the offensive scheme because that's kind of been the one constant across all of these guys. It, it, it's, and, and it's kind of the same thing, right? We have seen them be successful very much in other situations and other surroundings with other coaches. Now, the one constant we've seen this year has been the, has been the coaching situation and they've all looked really poor and, and no facet of play is really playing well at this point. Right. So I do think, you know, the, it obviously builds on top of one another. And and if you are above average in certain areas, that's supposed to carry you, but they very much don't have any of that. And I think, you know, where that falls is very much, you know, on, on the coaching staff and then maybe to a lesser extent, you know, how this, how this offensive unit, you know, was, was built and put together and, and the, and the units in which they were hoping to be strong and haven't been in that situation whatsoever. Yeah, I guess on the other side, the Chargers offense didn't look great either. Justin Herbert didn't look great. I, I think across the board and they got the job done against a really bad team on that Monday night, but I don't think offensively the Chargers had anything to write home about last night. Right. I mean, I think there was kind of like the one broken play where they got the trick play kind of throwback back to Justin Herbert where Keenan Allen probably should have scored. But, you know, outside of, you know, a couple maybe chunk plays, like the Colts continue to play really sound defense. So they are really strong against the run. I would say they're two outside cornerbacks, Stephon Gilmore and, you know, Isaiah Rogers, who did get a little bit banged up last night. Like they continue to play pretty good football and they got, you know, the turnover situation. I think, you know, Keithy Pay as well had a sack. So, defensively very much I would say is not the problem whatsoever for this Colts team, right? It's just the fact that they're starting behind early and and they're only getting three points basically, right? Or 10 points. And it's really hard to win football games. You know, it's really hard. I would say to hold teams to 20 or less points consistently, the Colts have kind of lived in that direction. I think that does speak to a, you know, an above average and a sound defense, but um, you know, at, at the end of the day, you need to be able to put up some points as well, you know, and, and, and the Colts just aren't providing that whatsoever. So we'll see how they finish out these two games. But I, I think there are definitely some bright spots, I would say, on the defensive side of the football. Do you guys grade out general managers in the NFL? <laughs> so that's, it, it's kind of interesting that you say that because there, I did have like a conversation with some people this past year about what would even go into – Uh, you know, evaluating whether a general manager was doing a good job. And a lot of it is probably like the draft capital and kind of outperforming, you know, where you picked in relation to what you actually received the past couple seasons. And that has been a spot where Chris Ballard has been good, but 
you know, outside of that, there's probably some other elements of roster construction, not overpaying guys at, you know, non-premium type positions and those sorts of things, which could probably and should be also included in that evaluation. But I, I think, you know, very much so the, those conversations have never really developed in the public space to the point where we've gotten, you know, a, a ton of good metrics on how we could even evaluate some of these general managers. And I think, you know, in, in some ways, you know, Chris Ballard, has done pretty well from a draft capital perspective and, and has, you know, in some ways hit on a few guys, but um, you know, overall and kind of like pressing the wrong positions and allocating too many resources to some of those positions, you know, in some ways might be the reason why he should be not more than what he actually has been so far. Um, I don't think there's anybody out there at that position in the NFL that has been overrated and as overvalued as him. Um, now, I tell you what, when you guys do put something together with a general manager, you got to find a way to factor in results, too. I don't know if there is. Right. I mean, you guys, are the, you guys are the guys yeah. that come up with the numbers here, but I, I, you got to factor in results. And, and this is what I say, and it, it sounds really simple, but we've had six years of this. And by now, this is, you know, without the whole luck saga, you know, with the change in quarterback, that, that constant – you know, revolution of, of quarterbacks in and out year after year. All that aside, you saw this last night. This is a complete and absolute mess, and this is a plan that has failed. So I, I think there's got to be some way you right. factor that in, you know, beyond the, well, this is what he got in round three when, blah, blah, you know, draft value or whatever. I think results, results should matter. And it seems like oftentimes maybe they don't, or at least in this case, it doesn't at all seem like they do. Right. And people kind of get upset at the idea of like, you know, wins are this quarterback stat because very much, you know, they, they control one aspect of it, but it's hard to judge a quarterback based on just how they've won or lost. But I do agree with you that that is very much in some ways the, the, the necessity or the bedrock for how you're going to evaluate these GMs. And, and maybe you could use some, you know, betting components as far as like if they, you know, overperformed or underperformed their, you know, win total expectation and their, and their chances of getting into the playoffs and those sorts of things. But, you know, I'm very much like how you produce and how many playoff wins you have and those sorts of things are, are probably most closely related and should be most closely associated with the general manager position more so than probably, you know, I, I would say any other, you know, front office or position that right. the NFL team puts forward. So Ben Brown at PFF. Now I'm going to give you a minute to look that up. Um, go go to your Colts page right here. Explosive plays. You guys catalog those. Explosive pl- plays. We plays. Do, I'm sorry, I tried not to burn when do, I was saying that, actually, but I did. It happens. It happens. No, we we basically try and um, you know allocate in like you know 20 yards yeah. for a passing play, 15 yards for a run play. In some ways, you know you know EPA can kind of. Um, you know, also capture that and kind of gives better context for, um, you know, the situation as well. But yeah, we very much have like an explosive plays percentage and those sorts of things. Where where do the Colts rank? If you can tell me compared to what is, I'm not even talking about the elite level in the NFL, but what is just the average of the NFL with what you guys describe define as explosive plays? Yeah, so we – let me look it up here. This might take me a second. Sorry, I did not have this one. I know. I always in, take you – I, th- I think our me, listening Dave, audience understands that I end up asking you questions that you're not prepared for, and they kind of – they cuss me out for that, not you. 
So that, that, I'm the one that gets that's good. I'm the that, one that gets I, ripped for that, not you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it would be. Uh, I, I know you get ripped for probably too much, unfortunately. No, well. that's okay. Yeah. I don't get not ripped for enough. I need to be ripped more. So if you if you guys did NBA numbers, and for example, if PFF did like Miles Turner, uh, that's when I would really get ripped. But luckily for me, you guys don't right. do that. So I appreciate that very much. That's that's when I would get ripped, which is ridiculous as to why I do, but I would certainly get ripped right there. So explosive plays by the Colts this season compared to what is just the 2022 season average for NFL teams in the explosive plays category because to me it seems like Ben there there hasn't been there's been a little to none and and again I'm coming at you from an incredibly pessimistic viewpoint right here because that's all that this team has given us that's the only reason we've been given right here but where would they rank as far as the NFL this season is concerned yeah, so I'm doing this quick and dirty so that I can kind of look at it. Basically, sure. they have the third lowest percentage of uh, of explosive type plays, which I'm defining as just a, a threshold of 20 or more right. yards gained in that particular play. So they have the third lowest percentage, basically, of any team in football. The only two teams lower than them, Giants and Rams. So they have gotten a couple, uh, I, I would say basically like six running plays, 39 pass plays, um, but it's it's been very much, I would say, you know, few and far between and one of the worst rates in football uh, this season. If I, if I, lot yeah, if I remove it, yeah, if I remove penalty plays, which, you know, there's obviously some situations where pass interference can come into effect. They have the fourth lowest, so they improve slightly and they do jump the Pittsburgh Steelers in that situation. It's uh, Ben Brown of PFF with all the analytics knowledge every single Tuesday Right here on this show. I'm glad you had a spectacular holiday and you got all that Vikings gear and you got to participate in that glorious whiteout. Uh, so have a great New Year's Eve too. Now, where does the PFF guy go for New Year's Eve? Do you, what, do you, what do you do? Do you play like Simon at home? You guys all get together and play Simon I don't, at home? No, that would be fun. I wish I got on that group chat. I'm probably not on there. I'm beep, sure there are some guys at PFF beep, that do that, though, but... So I'm, yeah, not on the in, I'm not on the inner workings of that. So. <laughs> My man, I appreciate you more than you know. And we'll be back coming up next week to go over what will be the, uh, the numbers with the Giants in mind of these final two games. Ben, thank you very much. Have a fantastic new year. We'll talk at you next week. Thanks, JMV. Have a great new year as well. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Zach Kiefer of the Athletics on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Hey, listen, I'm all for and cool with the loss because right now it's about the losing and to give yourself the best opportunity coming up with that top pick in April, especially without having to trade anything away to get up and target the person that you want. But you know what they could do is stop embarrassing themselves week after week here down the stretch. That would be nice. Yeah, the the funny thing is, is, is like when I tweeted last night that just Saturday is going to stick with Nick Foles for the final two games. As poor as Nick Foles played last night, three interceptions by the time the third quarter was over, there was almost this rejoicing on Twitter. Like fans are completely bought in. Like 
to this losing. And they've gone from 14 in the draft a couple of weeks ago to five as of right now. And they could climb even higher. Yeah. John, is this like the greatest tank of all time, like disguised as a bad team? Like, is this the master plan that Jim Irsay has orchestrated? If, if I'm, so, if, the man yes. deserves some credit. If I'm Jim Irsay, at the end of it all, I'm saying, you know, this is a part of the plan uh, because people really don't believe in the vision and the plan of this team right now. And there has, there has to be something behind it. I mean, monetarily speaking, I'm sure that's the reason, uh, ineffectiveness and monetarily speaking with Matt Ryan. Uh, but I'm no believer in Sam Ellinger, but basically anybody over what we saw last night, what, that has to be the justification for Foles to start these final two games, right? That has to be. Because I asked this a little bit earlier, Zach. I mean, I know that you cannot equate practice this time of year to a Monday night game against a playoff-bound Chargers team. But my goodness, how awful. That was an awful performance. And to justify that with two final starts, it has to be, right? Some grand scheme of tanking going on here. That's the only way to justify it. I hope so. I, I certainly hope that they're not legitimately trying to win, and that's the product we see. I mean, let's 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 dig into a couple of things real quick. Nick Foles made it very clear last week that Wednesday's practice was the first time he had thrown to the starting offense since August, and it was the <laughs> first time Ryan Kelly had ever snapped to him. And like, I know Nick Foles is a backup, and he's done some big things in this league, but like. That's the second time they set a quarterback up to fail this season. The first being when they started Sam Ellinger, who was never supposed to play this year. And I remember having a conversation with Sam back in August. He's like, look, man, if I want to play 15 years in this league, like I need to learn from Nick and learn from Matt this year. I'm on a three-year plan to get a better arm, to improve my velocity, et cetera. Sam never thought he was going to be starting in week 10. Nick never thought he was going to be starting at all. And here they are. And, like you, you know, you know the old Dodgers. If, if you don't have, if you don't have, if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. Well, they have three quarterbacks, and they don't have one. And gosh, this might be the worst passing offense I've ever seen. And I covered multiple seasons with Jacoby Brissett, a quarterback, and and this is by far the worst. And man, I feel for the fans that brave those cold temperatures. I know a lot of people drove in for the game, and you watch that team turn the ball over three times and score three points. I mean, I don't even think the Chargers did a whole lot right last night, but. They won going away because the other team was laughably bad. I, I thought Nick Foles looked as bad playing quarterback as anybody I've seen in years. And I mean on any level. And I, I, don't, think, yeah. I don't think I'm being over the top on that. That's how bad, that's how slow, that's how – I mean, he, he didn't have anything that would give you any reason why he should have sustained playing in that game, much less start the final two. Yeah, and that's what I always resisted early on when people were calling for Foles, as opposed to Ellinger. Look, neither are a solution right now. I think everybody knows that. They've given all three a try. But Nick Foles did not have a strong training camp. And the one thing that separates Matt Ryan from him, if you're grasping for straws, which we are because this team is horrendous, is, is, is Matt Ryan is accurate. Like, he's more accurate than Nick Foles. And he can fight. He can fit some balls into tight windows. The difference is Nick Foles can throw it 30 yards down the field and the Colts have no vertical passing threat with Matt Ryan. So where are you going, right? Like pick your poison. Neither are a good solution. Sam Ellinger, like they tried to build this as this guy who could run around and make plays. And Sam Ellinger is not Lamar Jackson. He's not Josh Allen. Like 
He's a limited thrower, and he's mobile to a degree, but mainly just because you're comparing him to Nick Foles, who's mostly a statue, and Matt Ryan, who is a statue. And, and you're right, man. Like, that third interception, was he trying to go deep with it into double coverage? I hope he was, because if he was trying to go to the near passer, to the near receiver, excuse me, he missed him by five yards, like by yeah. five yards. Like, it, it, it's just hard to watch, and I know we're spoiled around here from who we've watched in the past, but goodness gracious, they have they have no answer at quarterback. And if they don't take a quarterback with the third or fourth or fifth or sixth pick in the draft, I think the city's going to riot. I think they should. I you, you think about being spoiled as a fan base. I think, unfortunately, we have a fan base now that's used to this type of quarterback play. I mean, really is yeah. used to it. That's more frightening than those that felt – that everybody around here was spoiled at the higher level of quarterback play. Zach, people around here are becoming used to this crap product, and that is problematic across the board. Yeah, and the biggest issue I had with Jeff Saturday coming in, and look, like just a great guy. He's been great to, to, to work with to a degree, and he was a great cold, and all that needs to be said. But you didn't need to hire a guy to come in and scream at everybody and try to fix the offensive line. Like, you needed to find a guy, ideally, to fix the passing game because you have to throw the football in 2022 to win games in this league. And they didn't, and, and they'd have no answers. And they're progressively getting worse every single week. I mean, they went 0 for 10 on third down last night, 0 for 10. And that's not even the first time they've done that this season. They were 0 for 14 in New England. And I'm not here to say that they should have never fired Frank Reich, but at least Frank Reich's teams have gotten better as the season progressed for the most part. But look, that was, that was an unwatchable offense that we saw the last game Frank Reich coached, and we're watching one again. So there's no answers, and there's no, there's no single coach that's going to fix this. There's no single quarterback that's going to come in and fix this. And that's the reality is Colts fans need to know that just because they take a quarterback in the top four or five or six picks doesn't mean he's the guy. And then secondly, he's going to be playing behind – what is probably the same offensive line and with the same skill position. This is going to take a little bit of time, but he's not going to be walking into a perfect situation. Well, and, and again, we'll get to this in a second, but in jest, I'll tell you, who, I mean, Chris Ballard may end up drafting an offensive lineman. So we'll get to that in a second as to why he's able to sustain and withstand what is going on around him with this team that he has put together. He has blueprinted together. Zach Kiefer of the athletic is with us. So, Jim Irsay has completely put Jeff Saturday on course to fail. That was the biggest Correct. mistake because what is going down right now, if Jim Irsay truly wanted Jeff Saturday to be the future coach of this team, there is no way you can sell him now to this fan base. And that is not altogether his fault. That is the fault of the owner for putting him in a position where Frank Reich would have seen the same outcome. Bubba, Bubba Ventrone would have. John Fox would have. You, me, anybody would have seen the same outcome with this group. So if not the head coach moving forward, is Jim Irsay at least getting the intel that he wanted to get with Jeff Saturday, the mole, telling him what was wrong in the inner workings of this team, is there any intel that maybe we didn't know that he, he's giving to the owner right now? What's, what's the feedback been there? I sure hope so. I sure hope there's some byproduct from this mess that we're watching every week because really they've, 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 they've slumped into one of the laughingstocks of the league. 
I mean, you, you get the sugar high from the win in Las Vegas, and then what happens? Then reality happens, and you lose five in a row, and you get progressively worse. And to your point, if they really were serious about finding out if Jeff Saturday could be a head coach in this league, why would you pull him into this mess and see how it turned out? It's an impetuous, reckless decision. And like you said, they set him up to fail. I think any coach walking in probably would have failed because there's no fix to this passing game. Like, they needed a tactician. They needed a smart offensive mind. And maybe he changed the mood in the building for a couple of weeks. But that doesn't win in this league. Motivation doesn't win in this league. Scheme does and coaching does and talent does. And, and like you said, I, I honestly genuinely think that in Jim Mercer's mind, Jeff Saturday is a candidate for this job. Is that just smoke he's blowing out there right now because you can't say anything with two weeks to go? Maybe it is. And we're getting into rumor season, and there's going to be a lot of stuff flying around out there about this team. Some of it's not going to be true. Some of it probably is. But I do believe, and I talked to Jim Merce recently, Jeff Saturday is going to be a candidate for this job. Now, I'm with you, man. Like, what, what is Jeff Saturday going to go to him and sell himself on besides the fact that he has a great career as a player? There's nothing you can sell yourself on over the last six games that makes you think he's qualified to be a full-time head coach in this league. If anything, this shows you that every owner in the league should be paying attention to this decision, and bold, reckless moves like this are not, are not something that works out in the NFL. But this is Jim Mercer's decision. We clearly know who's going to be making the following decisions about who's the GM and who's the head coach. And really, he's not, he's not leaning his, ta- his, ca- his hat anyway because – it's almost like he wants Jeff Saturday to be the guy. So Zach Key from the Athletic on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. I'm kind of interested in this because your colleague at the Athletic, columnist Bob Kravitz, his latest is Ballard hasn't earned a seventh season with the Colts, but he's getting it. Probably. I want to dive into that because I wholeheartedly agree he hasn't earned. We've seen enough. It's time to move on. But evidently right now, Jim Irsay is not going to move on. But I think what's interesting about this is somebody used to be in this market, and she is now working for the ACC network, Taylor Tannenbaum, who used to work at 13, responded to Bob's tweet of this column in saying, fractured relationships with so many key players, how can he possibly be kept Wild to me. Now, she's somebody that covered this team for a long period of time, and I'm curious, have you heard of fractured relationships in that locker room with personnel in their relationship with Chris Ballard? Because I can think of a couple of things and a couple of players that probably would, but does anybody come to mind to justify that tweet that we read last night? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's accurate, but I haven't heard the things that would lead me to use the word fractured relationships. I haven't heard that. I won't go that far. Um, but, you know, to speak to Bob's column, like this model is completely broken. This offense is completely broken. This, like, let's build from the inside out. Let's pay a left guard $100 million. Let's feature a running back. Like, it doesn't work. And there's two examples. Look at last year. Jonathan Taylor took over the league, and what did it get the Colts? It was fun in November and December, and they didn't even make the playoffs. And then this year, another team that's completely built from the inside out and has a star running back, the Tennessee Titans, they're falling apart. And now I understand their quarterback has hurt Ryan Tannehill, but they've lost five straight, and they're going to lose the division to the Jaguars. This model is broken, 
And this is what Chris Ballard has been selling himself to Jim Irsay. That's what he started with in 2017. Look, it's not going to be about Andrew. It's going to be about the team. We're going to put pieces around him. Uh, Chris Ballard has certainly done that. And to say this team doesn't have talent is, is just inaccurate. But he's, maybe he's put together good rosters, but he certainly hasn't put together a great team yet. And that's the problem. And the record is 45-50-1, zero division titles. And that really, really gets to Jim Irsay. He's really tired of not beating the Texans, of not beating the Titans, and of going down to Jacksonville and getting embarrassed every single year. And that's really what did it for Frank Reich and why Jim Irsay couldn't keep him on board. But look, this is going to be a decision Jim Irsay is going to have to make. I really do believe that in his mind, as of right now, he's planning on bringing Chris Ballard back. I know there's a huge part of the fan base that hates to hear that. Some are probably okay with it as long as they draft a quarterback. But the reality is this is bigger than whether it's Ballard or someone else. The model is broken. The way they built this team is flawed. And this is not going to be a fix that they can do in just one offseason. No, and I'm curious. Is it that there is a deeply rooted trust that Jim Mercy has for Chris Ballard? Is there the fact that he doesn't want to have to pay Chris Ballard not to do anything like he's going to be doing Frank Reich in the future and then pay somebody else to come in to do the job? Or is it the fact that he believes in Ballard but also knows that he can nose his way in if he wants to and make some decisions that maybe other general managers not so much would want to have to deal with here? Is there a... A reason behind any of those three points made right here as to why Ballard is capable and able of sustaining when clearly it is time to go? I think all three could be partially true. I don't think he'll ever say a couple of those things. But, look, when they gave extensions out to 2026 with Chris Ballard and Frank Reich, what did Jim Mercer say at the time? He said, we have the best head coach, general manager combination in the league. And then yesterday he goes on ESPN and he says, I reluctantly gave Frank Reich an extension. So this, the story is changing. Sorry, my daughter's interrupting. Um, that's, that's all right. Making her first appearance on JMV. No, nice. and the reality is, look, I think, I think this is a big part of it. If he moves on from Chris Ballard this offseason, that, that is an abject admission that he got it wrong just 20 months ago. And, and that's something I don't think he wants to do. So I think that's I think that they're going to try and shift some of the blame to Frank Reich, and I think if they move on from Chris Ballard, that means he's restarting completely for the first time in ten years, and I don't think that's something he wants to do. And what he told me was interesting. He said, "Look, Chris has been up against it, and he's really good in the draft room. So I think he trusts him in that area. But clearly, when it comes to coaching and some other things, Jim has stepped in and said, "I'm going to make the decision." Well, then let him scout. Then let him scout an area. He's good at, listen, I'm sure he's good at that. I mean, hell, Ryan Grigson was good at that. You and I both know this. When Grigson was here and, and you know, obviously uh, with a quarterback put up better numbers, but when he was here, the, the one thing that he could do that he never got credit for because really nobody cares. All you see on the surface is the general manager and his decisions as it, you know, creates the results, either positive or negative. But he was good as a grinder and as a scout. That's where he started to make um, a name for himself in the NFL. I, I just, to me, we have seen this. And as you talked about earlier, we've talked about before, this product that has been put together has failed. And 
you're going to have to start basically from the ground up or at least close to it anyway. So why not the general manager whose blueprint has failed? You've done everything else. You're going to have to start there anyway. Why does the general manager from Jim Mercer get such a pass? I, I think this goes back to the words he used in 2017. I think there's a – this is typical Ursay hyperbole for the record. He said Chris is the most sought-after GM candidate to come about in the 21st century, right? That obviously has not, has not bore out, right? Like that – they haven't even won the division, for God's sake. But I think there's <laughs> yeah. a point of pride in Jim Ursay in saying, I got the guy that everybody wanted. And it is true that Ballard turned down some other offers. Well, the product on the field doesn't match that. It, they're clearly going in the wrong direction, and I think they're as lost as they've been in 20 years. They're as lost as they've been since 1997, since Peyton Manning walked in the door the following April, right? I mean, there's no number one pick waiting in the wings. There's no built-in excuse for why this season has fallen apart. Like, there's no injury on the offense that slowed them down. I mean, Jonathan Taylor a little bit, but this team's not going anywhere even if he is healthy. So I don't know how the GM sells that. But then secondly, I think part of Jim Irsay – it wants to believe that this is the guy because he didn't get it wrong. Jim Mercy doesn't want to get it wrong for the second time in a row in terms of Ryan Grigson. And that's a hard thing to swallow. And remember when you're dealing with owners, you're dealing with ego and you're dealing with a guy that stepped in the last couple of years to make three of the biggest decisions with this franchise. And I think if he keeps Chris Ballard around, like you said, maybe that allows Jim Mercy to say, well, look, I can still some of the, I can still call some of the shots. So Zach here for the Athletics on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I'm sure you haven't looked this up, and I'm sure you probably will at some point, but when you're thinking in terms of general managers in the NFL that last, because six to seven years is a long damn time in the NFL at any position, certainly at the position of general manager, I'd have to look around because I can't imagine anybody that has that time served at the general managing position of the NFL has lesser results than what we have seen with Chris Ballard. I'm assuming, and again, this is just a, this is an opinion here. I'm assuming that you can't find worse results than what you have seen over that period of time than what Chris Ballard has put on the board here. Would you agree? No, you, you, don't, keep a, you don't keep your job without winning the division in six years. And I'm not picking them to win the division next year, right? The way the Jaguars are coming and, and, and Tennessee's always tough. And, and the reality is this has happened before, but like you said, never with this kind of losing. Like Howie Roseman has lasted a long time in Philadelphia. He was famously banished to a different part of the building and he survived multiple head coaches. But the difference is they've made playoff runs and they had a ridiculous Super Bowl run in 2017 where they won a Super Bowl with a backup quarterback. That speaks to the the, the, the talent on the roster and so this is a little bit different like if he stays if Chris Ballard stays that's going to be four head coaches right like you start out with Chuck Pagano you move to Frank Wright I'm counting Jeff Saturday and then the potential next head coach that doesn't happen very often but again this doesn't have to make sense because it's just going to be Jim Mercy's decision you okay back there I'm sorry about that (laughs) <laughs> no, you're you good. okay. You're good. I'm, I'm balancing two things at once. No, I'm no, no. You're doing a great job of it, too, man. We, we a lot of us. I, I've got a daughter too, and she would be very outspoken. Just like there's nothing wrong with it, man. 
If you, if you need to go, I understand. It's okay. With the rest of the fans out there. No, you're good. <laughs> no, go ahead and continue, man. It's all good. No, and, and that's, I think that's a big part of it. You just don't see – you don't see a general manager last through four head coaches without winning big at some point in that process, right? And then secondly, does Jim Mercer really buy into what Chris Ballard's doing? Does he buy into what Chris Ballard has been selling him for the last four or five years? We need to build up front. We need to build one of the best offensive lines in the league. We need to win on defense. I mean, that's great. They've got a good defense. They have an offensive line that's regressed into one of the worst – but they don't have enough weapons on offense and they don't have a quarterback. And without that, it feels hopeless. And that's the problem is whoever this rookie quarterback is that walks into this team next year, it's not going to be easy. It's going to take some time. And maybe they hit the right guy. Maybe they don't. But the model is that's where I have some big concerns moving forward because Jonathan Taylor is a free agent following next season. So is Michael Pittman Jr. Do you want to pay Jonathan Taylor? What will be the highest running back salary in the league? Like, doesn't that just further the problem that your money is allocated to some of the wrong spots? That's the concern because there's, that's, that's a hard thing to come back from once you've invested in all those spots and once your model has proven to really get you nowhere. Like, they haven't even been able to win a bad division in six years. Well, and you think about you got questions surrounding Shaquille Leonard, if he's ever going right. to be. Because I, I will say this about Shaquille Leonard – one thing that has been missing defensively, and, and while last night you don't put it on them, uh, they were not covered in glory in the second half of that Vikings game. They weren't covered in glory in the fourth quarter of the Cowboys game. So they've had their, their issues as well, just not as deeply rooted as this completely ineffective offense throughout the entirety of the season. But, I mean, you've you got to question where he is compared to where he's going to be and what you thought he was going to be upon his, his return and then you bring up the offensive line. I mean, this was all cobbled together, and it's supposed to be one of, of the best, if not the best, in the NFL. And you're, you're paying three guys like they are, and they're not. And you still don't know about Bernard Ryman. You hope, but you don't know. There's just so much of an unknown here. It just seems like you're starting at square one anyway. So if you're going to start there, start there. And that's, I guess that's where I come down on with Ballard in mind. I'm a complete non-believer right now, but at the same time, if you're going to start where clearly you're going to be starting, um, I don't know why you don't make a clean sweep of it, but because it's not working. It hasn't worked and it's not going to. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How appealing is this GM job if, if you do move on? Um, because everyone in, everyone in this league knows how this went down, and people know. People know what Jim Mercer's been doing, and, 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 and that that's a factor here, right? Like, that absolutely Don't. is a factor. Like, these GMs, they pay attention to where they're going to go and, and how much control they're going to have. Well, I, I think you figure out whether or not somebody just wants to be here, right? Like, we look at Scott Milanovic right now as making a great call because poor Parks Frazier, he's going to have to, speaking of starting at square one, you know, after this, he's going to have to start at square one, even though he's been a play caller for, you know, this has been – probably as unfair and a bad call for him as it was, you know, hiring Jeff Saturday when they did. But I I don't – to me, if you want somebody and they're ready to be a general manager and they turn your position down, they're not the right one for you anyway. And I've always been, Zach, of the opinion, there is like two unifiers, great unifiers out there with belief from the fans and the organization – 
and that is Jim Harbaugh, and that is Sean Payton, neither of which are coming here, but both of those names would be great unifiers for everybody in terms of an organization that needs it within the organization and for the fans of the organization. Those are the two unquestioned unifiers. It won't happen, but that to me right. is would be the perfect scenario, either one of those, and certainly what the Colts need. Unfortunately, neither one I think will come to fruition. No, and, and, and I think I think Sean Payton laid his cards out a couple of months ago when he said there's a lot of dysfunctional teams in this league. This is right after the Colts had made the big change, and I don't think it's hard to see who he, who he was talking about. But if I'm yeah. Jim Mersey, I make Jim Harbaugh say no. I absolutely make him say no. And if he does, that's fine. If he wants to stay at Michigan, that's fine. But, like, if there's ever been a time to change up your model, and I think it's important to note that like Jim Mercer wants his guy, his head coach, to be like this great, nice man, this community man. I think this is important to him. If you look at his track record, Chuck Pagano, Frank Reich, Tony Dungy, Jim Caldwell, great human beings, right? The one outlier, the one outlier was the guy that he allowed Chris Ballard to hire. That was Josh McDaniels, but that never got past the finish line. And as you know, once that happened, you know, Ursay stepped in and had a little bit more of a vocal role in Frank Reich's hiring. But yeah, you know Jim Mersey, you know, or excuse me, Jim Harbaugh has a little bit more of a tough-nosed personality. He can be difficult. I've never interacted with him, but look, like if there's a time to mix it up, if there's a time to go get someone who's different, who could be a little crusty, who could wear some people thin, who could change the building, I think this might be the time to do it. Um, I, I don't think Harbaugh is going to come, but I definitely get him on the phone, and I definitely make him say no. That's just me. To me, and why I say that Harbaugh is the great unifier, and I also slot in Sean Payton. He's not coming either. But the reason being is it is clear, as we've talked about, that Jim Irsay and his meddling is incredibly problematic. And either one of those two guys, to me, stops the meddling. To me, then Jim Irsay can do his philanthropic stuff, his music he can continue to be a voice among the owners, a top voice of the NFL. All that stuff he can do while stepping away from meddling in the everyday activities of his football team. And I think that he would, to me, be proven to let Harbaugh or Peyton handle that and then step out of it and not meddle as to which you continue on with Chris Ballard. I think you're going to continue to get this meddling process. And if Jeff Saturday, the same type of thing. That's why it would be great if you could get either one of those two names as a great unifier. It's not going to happen, but in a world of non-perfect things, to me, for the Colts, either one of those two would be perfect. Yeah, and I think let's just play the game for hypothetical sake. If either of those two get to a final interview, I almost guarantee they would sit there and say, Jim, I make all the football decisions. I make the decisions. You do not make the decisions. Ursay would have to swallow that, and I think he would. You know, we're just playing this hypothetical game. This is not going to happen. But they would have to make that clear. And, and I think this all goes back to one thing, and this is me speculating. This is just my theory. But I've heard this from people in the building. Like, I think he lost trust in those around him. And I think the thing that changed it was the Carson Wentz debacle. When Wentz didn't work out, you cannot convince me that Jim Ursay still trusted Frank Reich. I really think that that was the start of all of this. Then he started to think, I, if you don't trust your head coach, what do you do? You step in and start making decisions for him. You tell him who to play a quarterback, et cetera. So 
you know, that, that's just a bad way to lead. And, and if you watch the Broncos press conference today, the owner is up there saying, you know, the new head coach is going to answer to me. That's a bad way to do things. That's a bad way to do things. I think the GM and the coach should be working together. Uh, but that's going to be fascinating. But I think, I, I think you're right. I think Harbaugh and Peyton, certainly Peyton, is a pipe dream. But it's going to be a fascinating couple of weeks. And, and I, think, I think Jeff Saturday is going to be a candidate, believe it or not. Well, and uh, the thing about Harbaugh is I know he had a flirtation with Minnesota a year ago. And while I say that there's, there's, there's no chance, I say that in terms of how unlikely I believe it to be. But let's just say you go out, you run the table and win a national title, and you get enough of a cash flow coming in where you want to you know, jump back to a team that you know uh, before, been a part of before, an organization you've been a part of before, work for somebody that you know to restoke that fire of trying to get back and win a Super Bowl as your next challenge, okay, that would make sense. Do I think it's likely? No. But I guess in terms of that, there's always a chance. He said something interesting earlier this season. He was talking to Mitch Album of the Detroit Free Press, and he said, when you get to a Super Bowl at that level and you don't finish the job, there's something inside you that just sticks inside your stomach, right? So that's real. That's a real thing that Jim Harbaugh said. That regret of not finishing that Super Bowl in San Francisco, that's a real thing for him. And he did have that flirtation with the Vikings last year. Now, I do have to add that every single thing he has said of late about the NFL, and it hasn't been much, he has shot it down immediately. He has said he's going to be back at Michigan. He's on top of the world right now. All they do is kick the crap out of Ohio State. He's in the second second straight playoff. They've got a great recruiting class. If you're going to believe what a coach is saying, which is always a dangerous thing to do this time of year, he's going to be back at Michigan. But if Jim Mercer calls him, offers him the moon, I think there's a part of him that would at least listen. I don't know Jim Harbaugh. I'm speculating. But, again, I think the part of him that, that just came up short in that Super Bowl against his brother, I think there's a part of him that thinks about that a little bit. We'll see. In this world of college football, college basketball as well, you have to show the world that you're 100% invested until you're not because of the transfer portal and recruiting and the minds that are changed now and why it's so easy to maneuver around. You've got, you know, basically you've got to lie. You do. And that's not anything new, but you you have to lie. So who knows? But uh, that would be agree the the great unifier hey zach get back to the family happy holidays to you have a great new year and we're here to sort this out i'm sure at some point again next week thanks brother sounds good thanks man